This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 66, in which I'm speaking with Craig Cartmell of the Ministry of Gentlemanly Warfare. Craig, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to have this talk. We've been going back and forth about coming on the show for some time now, and finally I got my head in the right place and was able to finally find my ass with two hands and a flashlight. And we're getting together now, and we're going to talk about the stuff that you have been working on and publishing, but also we're going to talk about skirmish gaming in general. So as always, I need to ask you the same question I ask every guest the first time that they're on the show, and that is, what makes you a veteran wargamer? Indeed. Hmm. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, You're very thinking welcome. of my great age and going back many decades, <laughs> which also makes me veteran, though not in a good way. Um, I was brought up uh, with my father and my mother, both being Royal Air Force sergeants. Traveled a lot as a child, and so they regularly bought me airfix models and soldiers, both the what's now called the 172nd scale and the 130 mm-hmm. scale. Uh, so I played with those a lot, mostly on my own, because we were always somewhere new. Um, I thought this was perfectly normal and got on with it, until in my last year of school, uh, a Canadian Air Force brat <clears throat> brought a copy of three little white booklets to school. This was 1976. And the bugger ruined my O-levels, or my, my first exams, because um, they were called Dungeons and Dragons. Um, still playing <laughs> every week. Uh, very sad. But the following year, I joined the Royal Navy, mostly to annoy my father, because he said uh, he would rather that I joined the forces and got a, a trade than go to art school and waste my time on a useless arts degree. So I joined the Royal Navy and became a submariner. Mm. Now, this is where I bumped into other people who played Dungeons and Dragons. They dragged me off to a little room on base where they had hundreds of soldiers, not just half a dozen. So I started playing uh, WRG Ancients, which I think was probably third edition then. Uh, quickly assembled micro blob armies um, from minifigs of 15 mil samurai and. Lancastrian War of the Roses, I seem to remember. I had to think about two-handed cutting weapon and bow, <laughs> uh, which was a fairly lethal combination, especially with the heavier armors. I also managed to, at the time, pick up... Um, there was a company, a little group called London Wargame Section, and they created a set of Middle-earth rules and a set of samurai rules. Now, these were about 40 pages long and 38 pages for tables. <laughs> <laughs> But being young and uh, sort of obsessive, I got into those quite a lot. The one thing I found when I got on the submarines was that people got very bored very quickly. The same novels went round the ship about six times. But a couple of guys had brought board games with them and pinned them to the walls with with, uh, glue. And so we played Drang Nak Austin four times in one 18-week tour. Wow. (laughs) Which, if anyone knows it, is about 2,000 counters. Mm-hmm. And the Russians won every time, which was very depressing, because <laughs> I wasn't Russian. Um, and when I got out of the, the sub, I actually subscribed to Strategy and Tactics, uh, because that had a, a free ball game every episode. So I didn't last long in the Navy, um, being too much of an idiot. Um, and when I left, I joined the local war games and D&D club in 
Portsmouth, which is the base I was, I was coming out of. And that is where a number of strange things happened. We're talking about 1979 to 1980. I became close friends with a man called Simon Miller, mm-hmm. who you might know from To the Strongest. And uh, now a board games designer called Mark Bing. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, I started DMing in what we called Eurogencom, which was a nice way of saying four or 500 people at a college over a long weekend. Um, not the Gen Con that was already enormous in the States, but it was run right. by TSR. And that's where I met a guy who later became my writing partner, Charles Merton. We were at the opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to running the Open. He would spend weeks obsessing over every little dot, jot and tittle that the Americans had written into their scenarios and writing backwards and forwards to them. And uh, at the Open weekend, we used to have a few weekends before to discuss the thing, almost half rewriting them. Whereas I'd be rushing around on the morning of the thing saying, has anybody got a monster manual? I don't know what this thing does. (laughs) (laughs) I'd sort of put my hands up in front of five Norwegian players and go, hang on a second. Oh, my God. (laughs) They've got one of these. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't very popular. Um, (laughs) And and you you mentioned writing back and forth, and that would have been well before email then that that would have been actual letters written on on paper and probably coming over on a long boat you know on a slow boat yeah definitely quills and uh vellum (laughs) and illuminating yeah i'd be illuminating the edges with charles and be putting in the punctuation in (laughs) (laughs) so continued through the 80s um failing in college um then moving into industry um, and that's where I went to, I think, called Westminster Hall near Parliament, where they had a games day. And there was a guy called Gary Chalk, and another one called Joe Diva, mm. uh, with a little lad called Rick Priestley, uh, bless his shiny pate. And um, they were demonstrating a thing called Warhammer Fantasy. Now, my friends went twice round the hall, which wasn't very big, then went into London shopping, and I was still standing by the table mm. <laughs> when they came back until they let me play a small dwarf regiment, (laughs) which I instantly ran into some trolls and had completely slaughtered. Um, (laughs) So I became a Warhammer fantasy aficionado, as you might call it, uh, or obsessive again. And then Rogue Trader came out. I've got one of the original My Spine Doesn't Work on This Book copies. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm familiar. I'm I'm quite familiar with that that version of the book. (laughs) I've got it on a shelf here <laughs> in many parts. Um, it's like a deck of many things, really, isn't it? Probably one of the worst rule sets ever written. <laughs> if you actually wanted to play a game. Yeah. But it, it's, just the humor. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the rules themselves are, are a touch of a mess, admittedly. <laughs> but it is a, it's a pretty decent toolbox. And... It has, it has provided countless hours of inspiration for me, and there are there are certain pages that are forever etched in my memory. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, longtime listeners of the show will know I am I am a big time Old Hammer fan, and especially <laughs> Rogue Trader. Um, <clears throat> Christmas of nineteen eighty eight, I got Rogue Trader along with the plastic beaky marines box and the 
metal RBO orc. one rtb01 that's right yeah and uh in, in fact i'm working on a on a rogue trader inspired uh 40k campaign not using 40k rules but uh in the sector of the imperium that they're in is is rtb01 so hmm. <laughs> there's there's no uh there's no secret there but um yeah it's just the the inspiration and the picture the picture it draws, you know, and of course, as a, as an eighth grader, I, I, I took it all very seriously and not understanding the cultural context in which it was written and presented, you know, I, I took it all very seriously and it just fired my imagination in, in a way that I don't think anything else has before or since Star Wars, maybe to a certain degree, but not, not like the Rogue Trader book did. And, uh, um, I mean, here we are, what, 32 years later, and I'm still wanting to play games in that version of that universe, you know? So yeah, I, I don't have much time I mean, for the current version of the universe, but, you know. Hmm. Well, one of the things that when it first came out that many Americans didn't quite understand, and I've had long chats with many of my American friends, is we were of the generation that had 2000 AD. Mm-hmm. It was the weekly comic yeah, and we had Judge Dredd and Nemesis and all the others, the ABC Warriors, Strontium Dogs. All this was written with a dark streak of humor, which is typically British. Yeah, right. And so the guys, Rick and all the guys writing that first edition of Warhammer 40K, um, were steeped in that. And so there was a lot of humor in it. I mean, who the hell would create a zote? <laughs> Dwar- mad dwarven biker gangs right that's mad max you know um so it's hysterically funny mm-hmm. and i continued playing 40k right up to about sixth edition by which time i'd lost all will with the rules but although i had a selection a small selection of armies my five thousand points of orcs was always my favorite and I am well known as the least successful orc general in history. <laughs> in 30-odd years, I've won twice. And one of those is an allied with somebody better. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just followed the war rule, which is, there's the enemy, run towards enemy. If your right. friends die, laugh at them. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I'm a crap general. <laughs> Well, this also the, rolls into other games I play as well. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're having fun making, you know, building and painting the figures and you're having fun playing, then it, it shouldn't matter, right? Yeah, it doesn't. Because I, I tend to play with guys who really don't give a shit. <laughs> <but, laughs> I know but this is a PG-12. <laughs> no, you're all right. Go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. I think it edit me anyway. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. moving on from Rick and his gang, mm-hmm. who at the time were a lovely bunch, um, I started writing my own rules. And this mm-hmm. is in the mid-80s, and I wrote some really god-awful pieces of poo. Um, but the first one, which actually attracted any attention, we ran it around a few shows, was called DBF. Mm-hmm. DBA had come out in the previous year, and my fancy friends and me, Mark Bing and Ian Notter, who's now Ian's another supporter of um, Simon Miller's To The Strongest, um, we thought we can do a fantasy version called Debellus Fantasticus, mm-hmm. our Latin being completely 
awful. Um, and we perfected them, put them on demos at shows. Everybody seemed to like them really very much. Now, again, we were playing to a fantasy crowd. Uh, so we sent her a nicely typed-up copy to Phil. And he sent a very polite letter coming back saying, we're writing our own. Don't you dare print them. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and then Hot came out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Let's say that DBF and Hot are not in the least bit similar. And Hot and DBF sort of died that day. Anyway, carried on. Uh, by then, I'd moved to North Wales, um, settled down, got a proper job, a wife, child, etc. And I helped found the uh, local war games club, Wrexham War Games Club, as it was then. And I'd got heavily into American Civil War. Now, I had been into Civil War in the 70s uh, using converted Napoleonics, uh, ethics Napoleonics. And at the time, this time, uh, Fire and Fury was was absolutely um, murdering everybody on the on the on the on the scene. So I didn't like it at all. I mean, it, some of the rules just didn't make any sense to me. So I wrote my own called Whistling Dixie, and it went through about eight editions with the guys. We ran it at a few shows. Everybody seemed to like it, but I wasn't. It had nothing in my head which said you could publish this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eventually, when I left that club and moved out of the area, it just sort of died off. And I continued writing my own rules right up to the beginning of the internet era, back in the days of uh, you know, America Online and Demon and all this sort of thing. Right. And we started having dial-up in the, in the UK when you guys were already probably getting megabytes. Uh, <clears throat> well, keep, yeah. keep in mind, not everybody, because... Uh... I didn't have any type of high-speed internet until. Well, it doesn't help that I live in the sticks, but. Um, well, I guess I had. I guess I had high-speed when I was the last year or so. I was, I was living in Kansas City. I had. Uh, mm-hmm. They call it Roadrunner. That was the first high-speed internet I had, but. Um, that would have been 1999. So. It's about then, yeah. Um, but um, my friend Pete Jones who'd helped me found the War Games Club in Wrexham, he set up his own little uh, bulletin board called Free War Games Rules, ah. which is still going. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's now more of a, a wiki sort of thing. And he got he started collating and getting people to send in their own rules. And, of course, I went, ooh, and threw about a dozen sets at him, and three of them basically fell off the side. <laughs> so <laughs> awful, it slid off. Uh, even he went, no, I'm not accepting those. Um, but a couple of my sets of rules in their early editions, uh, Forge of War and Fubar, um, actually stuck, and people started gathering around wanting to talk about them. Of course, this was uh, pre-Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. So a friend of mine, Gavin, set up a PHP board, and we set up the Forge of War development group. And this is a group of about 50 or 60 guys from all around the world and all different parts of the hobby who spent a lot of time working with me on improving those rules and also putting their own in. And the idea is the whole group leapt on a pair a set of rules and helped clean it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fubar originally was an experiment. It was how can you get a full set of um, small unit action rules on a single page mm. with printable margins. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eight point script. Yeah. Minimum eight point script. 
and we we would spend days and hundreds of posts arguing over a single word because that word was a bit long and it made it made it fall off into the second page. Yeah, right. And then when Fubar finally came out, a lot of the guys went and did things like huge Star Wars version. It's still going around now. I understand. But the reason I mentioned this is because at that time, Inquisitor had come out. The amazing Games Workshop accountant's way of trying to earn money by selling 54 mil figures for the same price as a regiment. Right. Yeah. I was. I read through, I got the rules, I've read through them and then sold them on a bring and buy because they were, in my own opinion, dreadful. Mm. Yeah. Overly complex didn't make sense in so many places, full of lovely pictures and lovely fluff, and the figures are fantastic. So somebody said, well, write your own name. So I wrote something called In the Emperor's Name, which is a set of Warhammer 40k skirmish rules, published them through the group, then onto Facebook. And uh, the group really helped me get it into a second edition, which should actually be played. And later, my friend Gavin Brown produced a third edition, uh, which was even more playable. Mm-hmm. But what happened was that I sat there every day reading my emails, waiting for Games Workshop's legal department to catch up with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day I got a letter through the post. Now, these are people who shouldn't know my address. <laughs> and it, it, it was the legal department, and I saw, my, my heart was sinking, and I read it, and they said, we don't mind you publishing these rules as long as you put the correct disclaimers on it and never sell it. You could have knocked me down with a feather because at that time, everybody considered Games Workshop to be the big bad. Right. Despite the fact that it had been the, in Britain, it had been the technical college for basically the whole industry. Mm-hmm. If you go to almost any British company, they either started off working in Games Workshop, yeah, or had worked in Games Workshop at some point, even if it's helping out in one of the shops. Right. Yeah. And they taught everybody how to do shit. So good for them. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I was later told by a person inside Games Workshop that one of the reasons it wasn't dumped was some of the design guys were actually playing it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was sort of, again, knocked me over with a feather. But the reason I mentioned this really is there was a young man called Phil Smith who came on the group and was regularly asking questions about this, that, and t'other really liked in the Emperor's name, and I'd mentioned at some point that I might do a Victorian science fiction version. And then he actually contacted me one day and said, I've just been made editor of Osprey War Games. Mm. <laughs> well done, Phil. Well done for you. And he goes, yeah, you know that VSF version? Yeah. We've got a, a slot opening in uh, 2012, beginning of 2013. That gives you eight weeks. Can you put 64 pages together, 25,000 words? Yeah, complete silence at my end. <laughs> yeah, I I, I would imagine. So, yeah, when you get the when you get the notice that a major publisher, whether or not they're known for war games just yet, and they say twenty five thousand words, that I, I would imagine that your your the gears started spinning pretty pretty quickly at that point. Yeah, well, I immediately contacted a guy who had written the scenario section uh, for In the Emperor's Name. American guy called Jason. I said, Jason, do you want to come on board? I'm going to need somebody to help me with this. Yeah. He said, I'd love to. I've never heard from him since. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if he is in the States and he listens to you and he hears that, just get in contact, mate. I mean, it's a shame. I, I think some, you know, life got in the way, probably. Yeah. So after waiting for him for two weeks, I then rang Charles and said, Charles, you are the best organized man I know. Yeah. Will you help me write this? So he came on board and we hammered and tonged it quite a bit. Uh, constantly rewriting when Phil did really underhand dirty things. I get Nick Eyre to send us sculpts of some of the characters we created. Mm. <laughs> my wife has never seen me pull my T-shirt over my head before. <laughs> <laughs> but I literally held up the figure of Lord Kerr, pulled my T-shirt over my head and ran around the kitchen until I walked into something. <laughs> like a 12-year-old. Jeez, stop making figures! Excuse me. Then the artwork started rolling in, and by then me and Charles suddenly realised they're serious about this. Right. Oh, God, help. So we got it all written up, uh, sent it off. They said, fine, asked a few questions. We changed a couple of small things, but really not much on the editing input other than, wow, that's really good, guys. Thank you. Didn't think you'd make it. Um, and there we were said, they said, well, come to Salute in 2013. And we'll say hello to you, and you can come to our stand and maybe sign a couple of copies. And we thought, ooh, we're big-time authors now. Yeah. So we went to Salute in London. It's the first time I've been there. It's it's our biggest show. It's about 10,000 foot full yeah. in the UK. But it's in basically these exhibition aircraft hangars. Right. So you have about 10,000 people who look like me, middle-aged or older, little chin beards or chin squigs, um, a bit wider around the middle than they remember being, um, wearing various um, t- uh, you know, uh, geek and nerd T-shirts and carrying a messenger bag. Right. <laughs> I thought I found my tribe. Um, so we went to the Osprey stand, and they said, who the hell are you? <laughs> well, that burst our bubble. Yeah. Um, then we went across to where Nick Eyre said, I'd been fighting to come and see a game being played, but then what he meant, and got there and found that Sean McLaughlin and Terry Broomhall had built a 12 foot by 4 foot London. And they had half a dozen of Nick's team um, playing in the match's name on it with fully painted figures. And I just stood there, and it, Charles had to punch me on the arm to actually get me to turn around and go, You didn't tell me about this. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, again, another moment where I could have run around with a T-shirt off, but I think I would have frightened the horses. Um, <laughs> anyway, we are then approached by Phil, who says, oh, by the way, we've sold out. So what do you mean you've sold out? Well, everybody wants to be into steampunk at the moment. We called it steampunk, despite you and Charles saying it wasn't steampunk, it was Victorian science fiction. Uh we called it Steampunk, put Steampunk on the cover, and we sold the first 3,000 copies, and we're getting more, and how fast can you write a supplement or two? I expect this is how Joe felt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe McCulloch, when he sort of wrote Frostgrave, and suddenly Osprey had turned around going, well, where's the supplements? Right. <laughs> so we produced the two supplements in 18 months, and they all went out. And we were feeling very pleased with ourselves, and we thought, wow, we're, we're wonderful now. And because of the way we think, um, we immediately set up blogs for, each of the ga- for the game and a Facebook page, and we're on there every single day. 
And what we didn't realize is that most of the authors who were working for Osprey at the time took a fee and walked away. We took a percentage and stuck in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I was writing articles for magazines. I was um, on the Facebook page every single day answering rules questions. Well, I was badly answering rules questions. Then Charles would come in and correct me. Um, I can't remember rules to save my life, uh, even my own. So we're doing all this while having full-time jobs and lives. Um, and then we, we turned around to them and said, look, three, two supplements, whole set of rules, everything else. We've got ideas for another one. We'd like to do a samurai one. And uh, Phil mm-hmm. turned around and said, this is sort of mid-2013. He goes, I've talked to the editorial board. The next slot that we can give you is in 2017. Now, it wasn't his fault. It was the editorial board. Still thought the Osprey War Games thing was a, a little side venture. Yeah. Right. And Phil was desperately trying to get slots for his authors. And he was had Dan Mersey coming up and this sort of thing. And Andres Philgoy. Mm-hmm. Um so he said 2017, and we went, nah, we're not having that. So then we founded our own little company and talked to Nick Eyre of Northstar, who said he would happily distribute. Because, of course, he had made a fair amount of money out of it, I imagine his name. Right. Uh, it had been a good seller for him, and he had done all the figure ranges for it. And that had been a good little seller for him. So he said, yeah, if you guys want to try something. So we, we thought for ages about what we're going to call ourselves. We went through a whole range of names. And then I was watching a uh, documentary about the sainted Christopher Lee. Oh, yes. And how he was a member of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare mm. in World War II. And I just turned to Charles and said, the Ministry of Gentlemanly Warfare. I'll be the minister, and you can be the permanent private secretary. There's a Humphrey that always says, Yes, Minister. <laughs> As he was a civil servant at the time, mm-hmm. suited him down to the ground. So, yeah. On to Die Show. What we didn't know, and Phil hadn't told us because he didn't need to and shouldn't have anyway, was they were about to break out Ronin, mm. their own skirmish game. At the same time as we brought out Die Show, Craig Woodfield did a lovely job on Ronin. Yeah. If you want a very low figure count, highly detailed combat game, Ronin's a very good game. And Daisho was much more a small skirmish game. And it's based on the same core rules in the Manchester State with a few of the improvements we'd want to make to it. And that was what, oh, 2015, we got that out. Um, we had to learn a lot. I mean, we had to learn about layout. I got my brother, who's an uh, art director to do the layout for us. Um, We had to learn about getting photographs. We had to learn about all the stuff, the marketing, getting printing, et cetera, et cetera. Because we had to provide a 1,000 copies to Nick, Mm. and then he would start selling it. He would do the distribution, the advertising, and that sort of thing. So Daisho went out the door, and that's the same year pretty much that we started noticing that well, quite a few people at the shows around the UK were putting on their own games of Inamanchi's name. And so we built some terrain, painted a load of figures, and started going around the shores to shows to sell Inamanchi's name, because we were still getting a percentage, and also Daisho. And we met a guy called Dave Wise. Dave Wise is one of the luminaries of what's called the Games Club Network in the UK. Mm. He had started collecting 
and painting up not only all the companies in the books, of which is about 44, yeah, yeah? Um, but all the ones I'd printed out, I'd put for free on the blog, another 20-odd, uh, and all the ones in the magazine articles, another dozen, yeah? And by the time I first met him, he had a company fully painted of everything we'd ever produced. Wow. <laughs> Dave is a marvel. Yeah. And he was going around, and he has ever since gone around doing participation games at lots of shows. Right. He's a complete show hound. Uh, whereas we go to fewer fewer shows, but we still put on a participation game wherever we go. And honestly, that is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Because both me and Charles are not exactly what you might call extroverts. Right. But once the energy gets going, you just keep going. And there's such lovely people coming up and wanting to play, bringing their eight-year-olds wanting to play, bringing their 75-year-old grandfather or him bringing them wanting to play. And we run, on each board we run, with the maximum we've done is three boards in a single place, is about eight games a day. Wow. Because uh, you can get people set up in 10 minutes with our rules, and the game takes 20 to 30 minutes, maybe 40, because we do a reduced game, obviously. Sure. Cut down. So, anyway, Die Show. Yeah. Now, Die Show was originally going to be cinematic samurai. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But mostly historical. But I said, well, have you seen 47 Ronin? <laughs> so, not Charles to watch 47 Ronin. And, of course, that has mostly historical samurai, plus elements of fantasy. So I said, why don't we do an optional set of companies at the very end, plus some optional magic rules and key rules, and uh, <clears throat> then people might like to play fantasy. And honestly, I don't think I've seen a historical setup of it yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody wants to bring in the Kenku or have samurai that can leap over small buildings. Right. Um so, yeah, that's fine. And we've got a group of friends up where I live in the north um, who've become the northern display team. And Charles has got a group of friends down in the south because he lives near London. Um, and he's got the southern display team. And we do quite a few shows. Obviously not this year. But all through that, we're thinking, well, one of the, the reasons we did Samurai is that we both had Samurai on our painting shelf. Because everybody has a few Samurai. Yeah, they pick them up at the show, or oh, I like the look of those. Right, but they never get around to playing them because they never collect enough of the two hundred odd you need for a full ma- full army. I said, well, there is another thing that both me and you have on our shelves which we've never get a chance to play with. And that's our Vikings. Mm. I said you're right there. So we wrote Blood Eagle. Yeah, because all of these books are written because we want to play them. <laughs> right, and, and yeah, I I can't think of a better reason to to write a war games uh, rule set because I, I, I get the impression from folks I've talked to, you know, regardless of what type of artistic endeavor you're pursuing, but if it's something you're getting paid for, you're not going to put the same heart and soul into it that you would, if it's something that you desperately want to do. So yeah, yeah that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, so we wrote blood Eagle and this time we made the fantasy bit a bit stronger but still, you can play anything from AD 500 to AD 1300 using those base rules. And people do. I've seen quite a few historical games of Bloody Call being played. Uh, quite a few are based on the cinematic things like the series Vikings. You know, people in ridiculous leather jerkins, etc. 
love the characters, quite like the shows, but you don't go there for history. You're better off going to a Swedish show called Norsemen, which is hysterically funny, <laughs> as well as being more accurate. Um, that did very well. And we now had a friend, Sean, who runs a shop, and he has uh, a digital platform, uh, which Nick is not really interested in uh, selling PDFs. So we've made PDFs of Die Show and Blood Eagle and start selling them. No, we looked at each other. Blood Eagle's doing fairly well, guys. <laughs> Charles, what are we going to do now? And he goes, well, let's follow the old um, the theory we did first time, which is, what do we want to play? I said, I want to play D&D as a skirmish game. He says, so do I. Um, so we wrote Thud and Blunder. Uh, it didn't have a title for the longest time until I reread Paul Anderson's 1969 article on, on heroic fiction called Thud and Blunder, Mm -hmm. I thought, since we want to put a fairly good stream of humour through this as well, and this is complete generic fantasy, because um, everybody's got a few D&D figures on their shelves, uh, we were at Thud and Blunder. And when we were about three quarters of the way through writing, we realised we'd gone past the spine size of any paperback. Yeah. Mm. Except, of course, um, Games Workshop, who like to publish paperbacks, which fall apart. Um, I've got one of those as well. I think third edition or fourth edition, where it's a lovely big black cover, and yeah, and it fell out in about a week. Um, so we went and looked at the cost of hardbacks, and that both of us had this little take a bit of a gulp. We'll have a go at this then. But uh, uh, by now we have had uh, Blood Eagle and Dublin Blunder, an Australian called Millsy who runs his own layout team and company in his spare time. Uh, I have to thank Simon Miller, to the strongest for that, who recommended him. He did a fantastic layout job on both books. And we had our Lithuanians, our mad Lithuanians from Standartu Spastov, or something like that, yeah. who are a fantastic set of printers and work really well with the layout artists. So honestly, we just hand over the text to the Millsy and then wait for the book to appear. <laughs> Yeah, we're very lazy, really. Right. Um, but Thumb Blunder's been doing pretty damn well. Of course, we've run up and down the country. Um, and then we, I went and had a word with Phil and said, you haven't really, from the royalty things, selling more than a handful of copies of the Menachie's name for over a year now. Yeah? And he goes, true. And I said, well, how about, we'll give you six months' notice and we agree to withdraw the publication rights because they never had the copyright. And Phil looked at it and had a chat with his, his team and came back and said, yeah, we're, we're not really not selling them anymore. Yeah? It's been seven years or nearly mm -hmm. seven years. Uh, so thank you very much. So we let them have till the Christmas of that year, which was 2018, to... Um, to run down their copies, which they did. Talked about the publishing rights and then said, right, we know we can do a decent size hardback. We know how to lay it out. We know how to get the photographs. We know how to proofread it all well because we've got a team of friends who do proofreading for us and they're pretty good. I mean, our FAQs tend to be four lines rather than turn pages. Mm -hmm. Joe. Um, so let's have a go. And we, what we've been doing since mid-2019, right up until now, is completely writing the game with everything we've learned yeah, from the uh, previous seven years, yeah, the rules have tightened up a lot over those years and improved. Um, 
and it's done. It's written. Excellent. It's just final proofreading is going on, uh, so we're going to publish it next year. Excellent. So, I think I've overrun my time, really. No, that's... that's, that's... I told you. <laughs> Neil should have warned you, you know. <laughs> no, that's quite all right, Craig. Um, now, I, I guess we could go ahead and get a little bit of a preview of what's what's going to be in the book. Okay, I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, let's just rush through that. Then you can actually talk about things you're interested in. <laughs> Eighty-five thousand words. Yeah. Wow. Over 180 pages, hardback, full color throughout. It's a complete overhaul of the rules, though it'll be familiar to people who've already been playing it. Yeah. Uh, inside the rules, there are 20 fully described companies, 24, um, which are a selection of all the best and the ones we've seen most played. Uh, both on the internet and at shows and things, from the three books we did originally. Um, but each of them has been rewritten uh, so as not to make people's um, uh, figures become obsolete, mm-hmm. but to improve it. Yeah, We still have, as we have from the very beginning, a totally open point system and a section which is written specifically to say, right, so you want to create your own company. Yeah? You've got a theme, you've got an idea, you want to run with it. This is how you do it. Yeah, Step by step, how to build your own company. Um, we've maintained that narrative, gentlemanly style that we've always had. Um, <clears throat> it's full campaign rules. And we have a system which is a little unique and have had from nearly the beginning, in which we have things called scenarios. Everybody's got scenarios. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Scenario complications. Mm. These are ways of making your scenario more interesting, like twilight, heavy rain, yeah, uh, forest fires, all sorts of different things, yeah? Right, right, right. So you can add a scenario. Uh, a common one is the authorities, especially in a VSF situation. You're standing in a marketplace, blazing away against your enemy, shooting down the odd civilian in between you, yeah? <laughs> well... You aren't going to be able to do that very long before Her Majesty's Constabulary turns up. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So you have the authorities. You have armed civilians, a common one in the States. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're in a, a Western town. You're gunning away with your robbers against um, the cattle baron. I think the sheriff's going to have a word about this. <laughs> right. Or the. Yeah. So Sheriff and two or three deputies turn up and start, you know, shooting people and then taking their names. Um, but we also write up landscapes. Now, a landscape is a setting in which you want want to play the game. And what are the benefits of that setting? What are the hazards of that setting, which might include recommendations for various complications? Right. Yeah. What sort of terrain would you have in that setting? So 16 scenarios, 15 scenario complications, 40 landscapes, meaning if you just take one complication with each scenario, you've got possibly 9,600 games you can play. Right. Oh, that's fantastic! I, I I love that approach. Yeah. I, there's there there's a a certain part of me that loves to see that narrative type of gameplay like that, and and I I got to admit it it harkens back to, you know, granted it was the late '80s and it was you know gaming was very chart heavy anyway, but you know going back to that Rogue Trader book, you know they had plots and subplots and different twists and mm. whatnot. 
if you recall, there were environmental rules as well. So yeah, absolutely. I, I love to see stuff like that uh, because it is that complicating factor that could completely change the game. And uh, yeah, that's the type of thing I like to see in a, in a, in a set of rules. So adding that is a, a definite selling point for me. I mean, we don't regard it as uh, a set of rules. We regard our games as toolkits. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, you could literally play stuff straight out of the book. Yeah? Um, but honestly, we're targeting the gamer who wants to fiddle with things. The gamer who wants to play their own style. The one who wants to use the figures he's already got at hand. Yeah? Uh, so we give you rules all the way through and guides and things so you can make what you want of it. And honestly, over the last seven years, we have been absolutely drenched with people creating their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Some are extremists like Dave Wise. Um, Neil Reinwald, nice American chap, he has been creating entire legends and stories on IHMN. Yeah? Everything from The Wizard of Oz... <laughs> I mean, the, the Wicked Witch of the West is fully pointed up, um, and the Flying Monkeys, uh, all the way through to the Wild West and explorers in Ophir and Africa and all this sort of thing. So I love it when people do that. Now, the one big thing which I got initially, people giving me funny looks when I put it in the very first Inner Manchester's name, as I put a small section on mechanized walkers. And people were asking me, why are you going to do that? There aren't any figures. I said, because gamers like walkers. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like automata and robots. They love them. Yeah. So in this set of rules, we have put in a whole new section on mechanized walkers. So you can design and build your own. But also we've created uh, tables, a series of tables containing 21 fully worked out walkers for the American, for the USA, for Germany, for Austria-Hungary, from France, Britain, Japan, Russia, the Ottomans, yeah? So sets of walkers, um, so you can just play them out of the box, yeah? And we are, I'm in the middle of trying to hand-build uh, scratch-built walkers, mm-hmm. one at the moment, wearing a policeman's helmet, and he is going to be riding a light suppression walker used for controlling riots <laughs> and for giving the Brick Lane commune a good thumping. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, we are loving this right in this yeah. set, honestly. And we've had to actually, we actually had to come to a point about a month ago and we said nothing new, <laughs> no more. <laughs> or it'll be three hardback books at 180 pages. Yeah. But there was one other thing we had to do. We, we committed this to ourselves at the beginning. There is a, an extra supplement we wrote as the ministry called Inhumanity Gothic. As original IHMN was all based on Victorian science fiction. And all the powers and everything were what Victorians believed might work. Right. So mesmerism, yeah? Victor- many Victorians believed in it strongly, so we put it in as a power, yeah? Um. We didn't do gothic horror. And at the same time, there was another guy writing Empire of the Dead who I met. And he says, well, I'm not really going to do steampunk. I said, we're not going to do gothic horror. Off you go, fill your boots. 
that we won't interfere with each other. But Empire of the Dead sort of slowly faded away, and we wrote a something called High Train Gothic, which is based on all the romantic horror, gothic romantic horror of the period. Um, it's been a very successful book. A lot of people really like the idea of being able to play with vampires and mm-hmm. werewolves and Dracula and iron monks and all sorts of strange things. It was drawn from uh, the literature of the period. So what we're going to do is one of the things to do before we launch is we're writing a free supplement, which will allow you to use these rules with IHMN Gothic. Mm-hmm. So we don't want everybody who's been doing the horror side to suddenly feel, oh, we've been left behind. Um, I'd hate that feeling myself, really. Right. I've felt it on various editions of 40K. <laughs> like my dwarven infantry are gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Etc. Every time I get my Space Marines just about right, you come out with something new. <laughs> I understand why they do it. They've got mortgages. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and they've got to sell figures. So I know why they do it. I don't blame them for it. It's just, it is frustrating. Right. Um, so that's about it on the old, um, my history. Um, <laughs> and also what we've been doing is the ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's been one thing we wrote into the very original rules uh, was what we call the power of rules and conduct becoming. And it sort of set the um, whole tone for the games. Uh, conduct becoming is if you, you can't play in a temperate manner, um, maybe you should have less port before the game. Um, right, right. And the power of rules is rules are for the obedience of fools and the guidance of wise men. And that was a small attempt to take the um, the rules lawyers and just push them straight out the window. Sure. <laughs> as far as we're concerned, if you're enjoying the game, play any way you're down well, please. Uh, because honestly, not a single rules author or rules company can force you to do otherwise. Right. The only place they can actually lay down any rules is if they run tournaments. And we have never seen an IHMN tournament, nor are we particularly interested in them, because we don't like competitive wargaming. We like Mm -hmm. wargaming as a hobby, as an interest, and where everybody who plays has fun. If it's not fun, why the hell are you doing it? Right. I've got several friends who are high-level competition players in 40K and this sort of thing, and now Age of Slugmar. Um, And the stress... The sheer stress they go through. It's like one is a very good uh, Dark Angels player. Now came the Primaris Marines. And suddenly he made half his Marines redundant as far as mm-hmm. he was concerned for a competition point of view. And he was like three weeks from a <laughs> tournament and had to create about six companies of bloody Primaris. That doesn't seem like fun to me. Right. I know some people seem to enjoy it and thrive on it, but not to old buggers like me. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a certain. I, I'm not sure where it came about or how it came about, but there's a, you know, some of the games that are of that ilk. You know, they they talk about the latest meta. You know, what's what's the best version of whatever particular army under the current understanding of the rules, and you get you get people that chase the meta, and they they're not tied necessarily to any particular army or subgroup and they just keep chasing the meta and 
I guess that's good for people who like to get a bargain because every once in a while you'll see someone dumping all their stuff on, you know, the different trading post groups on Facebook or on eBay or uh, Barter Town or what have you. And yeah, I, I don't get it. You know, I, I guess if you're, yeah, you know, I, I've said plenty of times on the show that, you know, you can make the hobby, whatever you want to make it. And if people want to make chasing the meta, their hobby or their primary aspect of the hobby, that's fine, I guess. But I just don't, I don't understand it. You know, the folks that spend hours and hours and hours on a single figure, I can get that. Mm. The artistic, you know, the artistic pursuit of it. It's not the type of thing I want to do. I just want to get three colors, <laughs> three colors on the figure and good enough for the three foot rule and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. And there's I use three foot rule all the time. Yeah. And I mean, there's folks that want to spend all their time on the research aspect and that's cool too. And I, like I you know, it, it's cool if you want to chase the meta, but I don't, I don't get it, you know? And it's like you said, I, I guess they get their enjoyment before the game. And so maybe the game itself becomes secondary, but mm. you know, I, yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. I'll let, I'll let you remount the soapbox, Craig. So <laughs> you wanted to talk about skirmishing. Absolutely. Um, we, you know, I, I talked to Mike Tunez of uh, Firelock Games last, and he's got a, they've got a couple of skirmish games. And I, I think, I don't want to necessarily define what a skirmish game is, but I do, I do like categorization to a, certain, uh, to a certain degree, because I think if we're operating from a common language, um, it makes describing our games with toy soldiers easier. And as, as my guest, I'd, I'd like to throw that to you. And what, what makes a skirmish game in your eyes? Well, I'm a great person who believes in variable spectrums, mm -hmm. uh, human behavior, everything else, yeah, politics. And if we look at it from a – I mean, I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years because I found myself writing more and more of what I call skirmish games. If you've got one man, one figure – and you name it, you fully attribute it, everything else, and you use it to fight with, then you're probably playing a role-playing game. Right. Yeah, and you're probably with a group of other players. So push that slightly to one side, and now we have more, just a couple of players, two or three, yeah? So the lowest level they generally play at is what I call a narrative skirmish, which is what our games are. You're talking anywhere between 5 and 15 figures. Every figure is an individual. I always uh, encourage people to name every figure because today's dopey little um, man with a spear, <laughs> yeah, man with a, with a hat and a spear, um, if he does well in the game, you might promote him and give him a shield and a slightly better fighting value, etc. Yeah, Because I've seen those guys beat heroes into the dust. Mm -hmm. The dice are the gods' element. Um, so, yeah, I call that narrative skirmish gaming because you, when you go to the pub afterwards, if you listen to the players, if they're talking about, ah, oh, and you managed to get away with that pig and that bear chasing you, and, and you, you had a really good fight, and nobody's mentioning dice rolls and nobody's mentioning factors, yeah? Right. That's a narrative skirmish because you've told a story together, mm -hmm. yeah? It can be very competitive, 
There's no, no, no getting away from that. It can be very competitive. People can get very invested. But that's a narrative skirmish. Then you move on a little bit into larger skirmishes where everyone is, well, every figure is still one man. Yeah, there's no scaling going on. But they tend to move around in small groups with the occasional hero helicoptering in and out. Mm. And that's what I call a small unit action game. And Dan Mersey is one of the lords of creation with that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Lion Rampant, Dragon Rampant, and the others he's written. Absolutely brilliant games. I've played them quite a lot. Love them to bits. Yeah. So you got us, you got Joe McCulloch at the bottom there. In the middle, you've got these small unit action games. Mm-hmm. And there is a very, very well defined niche there. There's quite a few people who write those sort of games. Uh, Andreas Vilgoy writes in both, both narrative skirmish and in the small unit action. Once you get above that, you're not doing one man, one figure anymore, and you're out of the skirmish. You're moving out of the continuum and towards uh, low level regimental games, etc. Um, that's basically what I think. Um, the thing about narrative skirmish that I like is because you play it with friends. Right. It doesn't really matter who wins. And I say that because I mostly lose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> um, but the, I come out of the game having had some fun for an evening or an afternoon. Uh, most of our games take an hour or two at most. But with my friends, we tend to play a higher point game. So we're getting a whole evening, 7 till 11, of playing fun out of it. Yeah, because we often play with three or four different companies on the field, multiple objectives. Um, sometimes we even forget where we are. <laughs> yeah? And we also, in our core rules, tell people at the beginning of the game, which is now not COVID-friendly, but beginning of the game, shake hands with each of your opponents. And at the end of the game, shake hands with each of your opponents. Yes. Yeah? Because that just changes the whole attitude. If you have to shake hands with somebody, suddenly the, all the tension goes. Right. Yeah, because you're playing as friends, gentlemanly wargaming. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I like I like the addition of the term uh, narrative skirmish um, because I think you know the the games where you've got anywhere from four or five up to maybe 15 figures. Um, I, I have, it, you know, admittedly, I have pushed that a little bit with uh, Jay Wiley's Fistful of Lead game just because of the, he said, hey, see if you can break these uh, <laughs> group creation rules. And uh, Fistful of Lead and its derivatives are, you know, aimed squarely at generally five figures in a group. Hmm. And I managed to, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to allow myself a bon mot here and squeak out 21, 21 rat men. Actually, no, 22 rat men in a group. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely. I, I like the idea, you know, somewhere in there, it crosses over from a role-playing game to a miniature skirmish. And you're naming individual figures and you might have individual characteristics um mm. and, and and I think not just, you know, okay, movement and shooting ability and hand to hand ability, but you know, like an actual trait, possibly, um, to individualize that that figure. 
And, um, you know, I, I know of gamers that have, you know, some characters in games like that that they've carried on for, for years and across multiple rule systems even. You know, and, and it's, a, it's a great opportunity for the folks that are into the artistic aspect to really lavish time on their figures. And, um, and you get a lot of cool stuff on a table also in a game like this um, because you don't have to worry about, okay, can I fit this 24-man unit in the space provided? So you can put all kinds of cool scatter terrain, as, it's, you know, as we call it, mm. on the table, you know, of a bicycle leaning up against a building or, you know, yeah. sacks, sacks of food as an objective, you know, for example, or um, something that uh, I'm wanting to introduce into just about every World War II in Europe game that I play is a small piano in the street somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can, I mean, you know, that's the type of thing that you can get away with and really, really take your, your table to the, I, you know, this is kind of a corny term now, but the next level, you know, really invest the time in, in setting the scene, you know, like you would a movie. And there are some, there are some uh, narrative skirmish games that do describe their activities as, as a movie. Um, hmm. There's the, the old West game, uh, a dead man's hand that specifically yes. refers to Mike and the boys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first scene in the movie, you know, and, you know, a game is actually three separate, you know, a full game is three separate uh, actions because you have the, and it might even be on three separate uh, uh, settings. So you've got your, your opening, you know, your opening shootout, you've got the shootout in the middle and you've got the shootout at the end. I like how friend of the show, Howard Whitehouse with his rules, uh, I know Howard, yeah. Um, especially the, uh, uh, especially as Mad Dogs with Guns, uh, Gangster Rules, uses the same approach and talks about, you know, building a scene, you know, like in a movie. So there's, there's this appeal to that, I think, where, you know, it, it's, it's all about telling the story and write, and you write, the rules of the book or what have you, you know, whatever your delivery system is, um, you, you write storytelling into, into the system so that, you know, it's not like you said earlier, it's not just, well, I had a plus one and I rolled a six and, you know, things of that nature. Now that being said, there are those opportunities where someone's going to get some ridiculously lucky rolls, like rolling five sixes in a row or something like that. Uh, mine's not be the five ones. <laughs> <laughs> I have literally thrown a bucket of dice from orc shooters down and had nothing over a two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're talking about 80 dice. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. And uh, uh, they're absolutely, and, and being able to, you know, inject, you know, the why of that. Mm. And I think that's where. I think that's where skirmish games really stand out. Not to mention, I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you've got, you know, with our, the way our lives run now, if you've got limited time to pursue your hobby, I mean, we're not 15 anymore and we can't afford to spend, you know, 12 hours on a Saturday playing a game. You know, if, if you only have the four hours, 
a week to actually play something and you know that 30 to 45 minutes of that is just going to be flapping your gums with your buddy on each end and well now you're down to two and a half to three hours if you're lucky and you want to get that game in because you want to have that feeling of satisfaction of having completed it so yeah skirmish games are a great way to to satisfy that not to mention the amount of time that it takes to paint the figures i mean if you're only painting you know half a dozen figures aside you know you could you know most people could knock that out in a relatively short order if they had to you know you need to interview Simon Miller. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Simon is um he's looked at this very intelligently. This is far mm-hmm. brighter than me. Um this big battle issue. Yeah. And he's created a set of rules to the strongest, which is actually thinner than any of our sets of rules. Mm-hmm. And he can put three thousand figures aside and play it in two hours. And yeah, still, I'll, you come out thinking, "Wow, that worked!" Yeah, I'm I'm all about that. I mean, I'm I've definitely made it no secret that I'm a huge fan of commands and colors, and i I get the I get the feeling of a full miniatures game after playing commands and colors. And you know, it's maybe I think the longest game, the longest single game I've played was an hour and a half, hmm. and. You know, that's not counting the times I've done it on YouTube with, uh, played, you know, live on YouTube with, with Henry Hyde. But, you know, anything you do with Henry Hyde is going to take a while because <laughs> once Henry starts talking, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to stop him. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's still a, a definite place for the big battle games. Yeah. Oh, don't and get the me wrong. Game as well. I mean, most of the World War II games are not quite skirmish. Right. Uh, small unit action games, yeah? Right. But yeah, you could spend 12 hours easily trying to take a small village in Normandy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I, I think... If you have... Depending on the rules. Yeah. I, I think the... I mean, it's pretty easy to say that... Or pretty easy to see you know, the, the break between a skirmish game and, as you're calling it, a small, a small unit game is... Well, it's what whatever your discrete element is. So in a skirmish game, that's a single figure. And then with the exception of, you know, whatever term you want to use, you know, extras or mooks or henchmen or whatever, where you might have three figures representing, you know, as a, as a very, very discrete unit. Um, and then you, when you move up to something like chain of command, where you've got a, a fire team or a squad at, that you're moving around or 40 K for for that matter, you know, you know, take a look at, you know, Mordheim or Necromunda skirmish game, individual figures, possibly named 40 K. You know, you've got us. Okay. You've got a squad of three or more and it goes from there, but, but this isn't the yeah, Mordheim was a, a great inspiration to me. I love what they did with that. Yeah. And was distraught when they suddenly decided, no, not get enough money out of that. So shove it into the free games corner. Yeah. Um, it- yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, we had a lot of fun with that when it came out as well. Um, and it's certainly provided plenty of inspiration uh, since then. Actually, I during the height of COVID, uh, I was actually involved in a in a uh, ongoing virtual Mordheim game with uh, some friends of mine, and they're still playing. They've they've got the. <laughs> 
they've they're meeting generally once a week. I can't quite get the time to do it, but they're they're still having fun with it, and it is more on the RPG light side because they're doing stuff in between games and and that sort of thing. But uh, what we call campaigning, exactly. Yes, yeah. You just use one word to describe what I tried with ten. So. Oh. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of people who play Mordheim games that are now using Dub and Blunder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing they've had to do is create their own firearms rules. Right. Which isn't complicated, really. Um, so, yeah. There's a lot you can do with the, with a skirmish game. Um, small unit actions are, are fun. And I do like to, about once a year to take part in a, a large battle game. But I think one of the things about skirmish games is the entry. Yes. For entry-level players. If they find they have to only buy eight figures and then try and daub something onto eight figures or get somebody, or pay somebody to paint their eight figures, and they can go to a friend's house who's already got the terrain, I mean, the entry level is incredibly low. You're talking £15 or $20. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why many of the big board game skirmish games, like Zombicide and Black Plague and other ones like that, uh, Descent, uh, all the all the ones which are sort of they sit on the edge of skirmish and role play. Right. Um, I think they've become very successful because you only have to buy the box. Mm-hmm. I know they try and sell you six thousand other boxes. But if you want to play Zombicide Black Plague, I've got a copy downstairs. I mean, I'm painting up the undead to form a <laughs> blunder undead um, company. But you've got everything there. The rules are there. The scenarios are there. The figures are there. You can just get it out, and it can take an hour, or it could take all day <laughs> if you run a series of the games. And that's where a lot of the new players, I think, are coming from. I've met a lot of people who said, "Oh, I've, I've, got, I've been looking for. I was looking for more stuff for Zombicide, and I found these these rules. Have you played them?" And we get quite a, bit, a lot of people at shows coming up and said, "I've done, I've done that, that that thing you're doing there. I've done We did it with lots of zombies called Zombicide, right? Or Descent, or one of the others. And you just have to sort of tip them over the edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, you can play this, and it costs less. Yeah." yeah. And what if I see how much terrain costs? <laughs> and what if I told you you didn't have to play constrained to to their board? Yeah, you know. Hmm. Yeah, and that um, you do can get converts that way, but I think that's where a lot of the new games are coming from. Um, in the old days, it used to be history buffs, or they played it at college, or mm-hmm. this sort of thing, or even D and Ders coming wanting to do it a skirmish. But now it's the board games who are bringing them in. I mean, board games is a billion dollar industry now. Yeah. Yeah. And it has its own games workshop called Cool Mini or Not. <laughs> yeah. Or or Asthma Day also. Hmm. Yeah. But. Hey, on your show notes here, you were asking about figure scales as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I wanted mean, to I, I think that I think if you if you start I mean there are plenty of folks that play skirmish games. Uh, with 15 millimeter figures, I think that's probably the low end. Um, I know that there are some great 15 millimeter manufacturers out there, 
that do really, really nice characterful figures. Uh, Kurosan comes to mind mm-hmm. as one. Um, but I think you lose some of the characterization um, if you get too small, you know? Uh, I, I Obviously, 28 mil is the is the most popular uh, figure size to use, figure scale size, whatever term you want to use. Um, and yeah, I have to 32. We get more scale creep, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. 25s are are pretty much a thing of the past. I, I'm not sure. Is there anybody that's making true 25s anymore? I don't know, but I've got boxes full. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess Rafam is still making t- true 25s, and uh, Ralph Partha became Iron Wind. Uh, Games Workshops, Lord of the Rings ranges. Are they true 25s? They're closer to 25 and 28. Mm. They certainly look odd next to their fantasy figures. Right, right. Um, and uh, and then you can get into 54 even. Uh, well, obviously mm. with, uh, with Inquisitor, they went 54 with that. Uh, well, they frightened me 54s because of the painting. Right. Uh, Stuff I can get away with on a 28mm figure would look like blob painting on a 54. Yeah. Yeah, um, I I did recently see pictures of a chain of command game using one thirty fifth scale figures, hmm. which just boggles the mind because the idea of painting not just a handful but thirty to forty one thirty fifth scale figures and the terrain for a game is, yeah. is mind boggling. Um, I I have mentioned many times before uh, Chris Clucky out of Minnesota. He runs French and Indian War skirmish games with beautiful, just absolutely jaw dropping fifty four millimeter figures and and terrain. I've got pictures up on uh, Twitter and Facebook if anybody wants to take a look at those. Just absolutely gorgeous. I I definitely think there is room for that. Um, and he runs. Oh, four to four to five players aside, with hmm. with figures that large. Now using you know he's using the uh, fistful of lead rule. So again, you've got five figures per player, but uh, and he runs it on a table big enough that no one, it doesn't seem crowded. I think he does like a five by six, five foot by six foot table, hmm. and that that definitely provides plenty of room. Um, and do you do anything besides 28 for your skirmish gaming? I have got 15 mil, um, all based, all undercoated, mm-hmm. mostly cobblestone, and oh, also yeah. uh, Crom's Anvil by Mike Stocking. Oh, Because um, yeah. I want to do some sort of heroic conan type stuff. Sure, sure. He sure. has his own set of rules, which are actually very good, uh, very small, um, very easy to pick up. Um, I'll probably play with his rules to start with, but I've got the 15 mils. Mm-hmm. I've got about hundred of them sitting there. <laughs> They're in the queue. Yeah. I have a queue that starts in a set of metal drawers and works its way slowly across the room until he gets onto the actual table here. <laughs> and then they sit and look at me until I feel yes. guilty. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I love 15 mil for fantasy and I actually had at one point, And again, this is a dummy me when I was in college. I, I, I sold way too many miniatures for bare money. Unfortunately, actually, I wasn't. I wasn't in college when I sold my Demon World figures. Um, I had a sizable orc army for Demon World, 
Um, mm. And they're lovely figures. You can still get them. Um, they're a tad cartoony, but I still like them. Um, since we're talking about Fantasy 15s, uh, there's a couple other companies. You mentioned Cobblestone is doing some some lovely 15s. They've got the, you know, I don't need to tell you, but for the listener, they've got some really nice uh, Conan-looking barbarians, you know, fur bikinis, the whole deal. And um, there's just something about the possibility of doing a, a large game like that, um, which appeals. But, of course, we're not talking about large games. We're talking about skirmish games. But, um, I mean, I could see doing... You know that def, you know the great thing about fifteen and smaller figure scales is, of course, you can do it on a much smaller table, and you know you convert your measurements from inches down to centimeters. All of a sudden, you know it looks the distances look about the same. Or if you want to keep inches, you know the distances now look a little bit more realistic. In my opinion, yeah. yeah I mean, one of the things we we talked about a lot at the beginning was bases. Mm-hmm. And we came to a decision that we were not going to recommend any base sizing whatsoever. And we did it by the very simple thing of saying, no more than four figures can gather around and attack one other figure. And suddenly, people could have square bases, round bases, hexagonal bases, 15 mil bases, 20 mil bases, 25 bases, 30 mil bases. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that our, our remit was always, always thought was us, what have they got on their shelf? Yeah. Right. They've got, oh, they've got half a dozen medieval figures on square bases because they played those in the old days. And they've got a load of role-playing figures yeah, on round bases. And I, people always come and say, well, what bases do you need? Do I have to rebase everything? No. Just four people fit round one. Yeah. Unless they're a huge giant, in which case you make it up as you go along in the game. Say, mm-hmm. oh, that's a giant. He's got a 50 mil base. Oh, right, eight people can get around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that way, you don't have to worry about the scales. You don't have to worry about the bases. It works. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like to see more people doing that because I think that helps players a lot. Yeah. And, um, and when, when we do start talking about, you know, only so much time to game and, or pursue our hobby, however that is, you know, the last thing someone wants to do is redo work they've already done. You know, and in rebasing figures, I'm I'm led to believe that there is a separate sub hobby of of rebasing figures, <laughs> and and I'm yeah. sure and I'm sure and I'm sure folks like war bases or I'm sure folks like war bases and Litco are all about <laughs> folks rebasing their figures, but uh, oh but yes, unfortunately I am one of those heretics. Who's found the perfect twenty-five mil base, and it only cost me two pence. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have. I've a twenty mil base, and it cost me one pence. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have that option here in the United States. No. Well, it works on especially good for plastic and resin. Yeah. Because it's a metal base. Right. And therefore, it gives it a better weight. Yeah. yeah. It gives it that heft. And I. And I get uh, fr- you can get fridge mag sheets of fridge magnets, yeah, which are self adhesive and twenty five mil or twenty mil circular. So I just get the metal base, put a fridge magnet on the back, put the figure on the top, give it a little bit of gubbins around the base, yep. and it's good to go. And sits in metal trays and metal 
uh, toolboxes and things quite safely. Mm-hmm. So I set myself a fortune in foam as well. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I understand. I mean, one of the nice things about skirmish games is that if you're only doing 15 figures maximum for your company, you can spend some time on the base. But if, you know, it only takes a bit of um, putty and then a little bit of uh, flock or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you've suddenly got a base that looks quite nice and lifts the figure a bit more, even if your figure painting isn't that great, <laughs> like right. mine. Right. Yeah. Question for you, since we are talking about basing. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been folks who are basing their skirmish figures on clear acrylic bases. Mm-hmm. What are your what are your thoughts on that? I think it's lovely if you've got a decent mat to play on or a, a table to play on. Right. Yeah. It also takes away that problem of the dungeoneers striding down the corridor with bushes around their feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the the town's guard marching across the fields surrounded by cobblestones. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got no problem with it, and I think I probably will experiment with it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm expecting a, a Kickstarter to come in. The Dungeon in the Box people did a thing called Skinny Miniatures Kickstarter about eighteen months ago, mm-hmm. and that's um, two-dimensional um, acrylic, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful uh, drawing of you know your average adventure or whatever on one side, then the back of that figure on the other side. Right, but it's two-dimensional and fits on a clear base. And I'm going to use those for the NPCs in my city and this sort of thing. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I do a lot of role play. I've run a lot of role playing games and write my own as well. And having lots of NPCs in a street makes a hell of a difference. Because mm-hmm. I, I hate it when people say, "I've just produced a city," and they've got these wonderful individual figure models for often resin or MDF, and they've painted them up nicely, and they just plonk these houses down each side of a street and say, there we are. And I'm going, yeah, where's the mud? Yeah. And the barrels and the boxes and the wagons and mm-hmm. the, the butcher selling his wares and the tinker on the street and the prostitutes on the corner. Uh, where are all these people? The immersion isn't happening. Right. I'm seeing an, an empty new development by your local <laughs> local fantasy developer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want all that stuff. So I invested in this thing, and I'm hoping to get lots of sets of villagers and townsmen, right? as well as a few monsters. Um, but I don't mind that. That doesn't take away from my hobby of collecting and painting figures. Right. Absolutely. It's just an alternative. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there who I've, pe- I've seen people walk up at the shows, pick up one of my figures, which always slightly irritates me. <laughs> um. They pick up one of my figures and they look at it and go, how do you paint this well? I look at them. They look at me and I say, come here a minute. I open my box and pull out a few painted by my friend Kev Dallimore. Yeah. And they go, oh. I said, yeah. <laughs> I can't paint this shit. But they're terrified. Yeah. There's thousands now of, of semi-professional painters out there making a living. Mm-hmm. from all these new gamers who are terrified of painting their own figures. I think it's great for my friends like Matt and Billy and those who are, who are making a nice little side business from doing basically tournament standard painting. Right. Um, and one or two of my friends who are who established, long-established gamers, 
who've got to my sort of age, and like me, their eyes are going a bit and their hands tremble slightly, who found these young chaps who are willing to spend their lives in their bedrooms painting other people's figures, and they say, well, I've got the disposable income now. Right. Yeah, so I can have my terrain painted, I can have my figures painted, and I only have to get 15 painted to play in Craig's game. Yeah? So they have them painted to what I would consider masterpiece standard. And they go and sit next to my, my blobbies. <laughs> <laughs> and the immersion happens. That's what I like about narrative skirmish gaming is the immersion happens. People change at the table mm-hmm. because every one of their figures is named. And I insist, if you go to my table, you name your figures. So along comes Gerald of Godeberg, this knight, Sir Gerald, yeah? And his idiot son, the squire, whose name is Nob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, sergeant called Sergeant Biggest or Biggest Dickus or something. Yeah, um, and they often give them silly names, but later on, after a few games, they start giving them names that mean something to them. And that figure has been knocked out of the game three times, but each time has survived the survival role at the end. You know, crawled off the field or been dragged off by the nuns, um, and uh, survived that. So he comes back the next game. He's got a shield now. Yeah, so they looted shields. So he's got a shield now, and the investment and the immersion of nice terrain, painted figures, a group of friends, a few beers, and you forget you're playing a game. Yeah, you're in, you're creating uh, a TV episode in many ways. Mm-hmm. Prologue. There's the action. There's antagonists, protagonists, and there's a, an epilogue. And often people write up the games afterwards and put it on our little Facebook groups, our friends' Facebook groups. Yeah? For the guys who weren't there, they'll write up a little thing. It's like a lot of people do for their D&D and stuff. Right, right. And that's what a narrative skirmish is and why it's different to a battle game. Yeah. Yeah? Absolutely. And there's, there's, an infinite, there's infinite possibilities with this type of gaming. Um, you know, everything from... A group of Crow Magnons beating up a, a group of Neanderthals, and hmm. all the way through, you know, Roman pirates and Carthaginians, and all the way up through, uh, you know, space monks and and, and the amazing year forty thousand and, and beyond. So, yeah, I, I think that the 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 immersion you mentioned the immersion. I think that's that's a big part of it. I think that being able to let your imagination run wild or, you know, maybe not wild, but at the very least get it out there and see what you can come up with. And, you know, creating a story with your friends that you can, that you can tell tales about later, you know, for years to come. I, there's really something for everybody in, in skirmish gaming. And if you're listening and you haven't done skirmish gaming before, I definitely recommend taking some time you you've got the figures to do it anyway might as well right so uh just invest in a decent rule set um if it's fantasy something like thud and blunder our game obviously or joe's frost grave that's very popular yep uh, and there's half a dozen others out there um if you like conan go for um crom's anvil with mm-hmm. mike stocking it's a little independent uh he does his own figures as well um but there's, there's dozens of games out there you could choose. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the same goes for almost every period in history and fantasy and science fiction. There are skirmish games there now. Mm-hmm. 
there's lots of free rules on the net you can just download. There's lots of oh, yeah. PDFs you can get for well less than half price <laughs> of, the, of the book. Though, being old-fashioned, I actually like to have something in my hands. Right. So I normally, if I get the option, buy both, buy the, the hard copy and the digital. Mm-hmm. Digital's good for reference on the screen when you're writing stuff up. But the book is nice at the tabletop, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot easier to page through a, a hardback or a softback book than it is to try to find a particular thing in, in a PDF. Because th- I, I find that at a certain point, you know, if I'm looking for something, I have an intuitive feel where it is in the book. And I can just kind of thumb to it. And that, that's a little difficult with a PDF. But um, I will note that I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure every every little manufacturer of figures and every publisher of rules, except for the big boys, if they're an independent, I'm going to get them in this in the show notes for sure. Uh, we'll have show notes for the uh, books Craig's written, as well as uh, groups on Facebook and Let Adventure Form and etc. cetera. Uh, so if you want to pursue Craig's stuff, you know, just look in the show notes. I, I can't think of a better way to end the show than with what we've just said. So Craig, thank you very much for, for coming on. Was there anything, one, any last, last bit you wanted to mention? Uh, not really. I think I've uh, wombled on long enough, <laughs> <laughs> certainly long enough for people to paint 10 figures in that period. <laughs> <laughs> one, one That's why I use podcasts. I was painting. Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead and, and get that last uh, layer of, uh, that last layer of uh, phthalo green on your on your f- last figure, and go ahead and set it down because we're coming to an end. Um, now you said the 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 uh, in her in her Majesty's name, yeah, in her Majesty's name, second edition next year sometime. It'll be well. We we always plan to release our games at Salute. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we've got no idea if there'll be a Salute right. in the coming year. Um, but it's normally in the spring. Now, if we're looking at real timetables, we're still in the final stages of the editing. Um, we intend to get it to our, in, out to our guy in Australia, uh, Milsey, at Cobalt Peak Design. Uh, well, he'll have that in a couple of weeks' time. He then spends about between two and three weeks, sometimes four, doing the full layout. So that takes us through into the end of November. Um He'll then pass it to us. We do the final print proof as such. And then he sends all the stuff across himself because it's easier than using because it's multi-megabytes mm-hmm. uh, to Standartu in, in um, Lithuania. They'll print it over Christmas. Now, there is a small codicil at the moment in that at the end of this year, the UK is fully exiting uh, the European Union. Yeah, mm-hmm. My political opinions on this are well known. Um, so we don't know yet if there's going to be any problem with getting stuff back into the UK. We're hoping yeah. not, because he will then they will then print off the first uh, print run and send it to Nick Northstar, who's our publisher as such. And so it should be available. Uh, we're hoping February March, and we will make a decision when we know at what date we're going to do it. And then, of course, we'll advertise it widely. Mm-hmm. Um, with no, if there's no salute, we may do it a little earlier than we would have before. Okay. And we will be publishing both in the hardback and the PDF at the same time. 
And uh, we will be sending out review copies to all the regular reviewers, magazines, and everything. And that'll probably just before we actually publish to the public. Um, and then we just the two of us running around like lunatics trying to market it everywhere. Right. Are there are there any plans for a Nick starter? Um, I don't know. No, don't know yet. Um, Nick has very wisely moved all the IHMN ranges and turned them into VSF ranges. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think there's any reason you'd want to show them back. Though uh, a lot, because Kev paints his figures for him, and Kev is always very kind in the number of photographs he gives us for nothing. Um, there will be a lot of the, his figures in the book, as well as a lot of figures from regular gamers, etc., who are producing beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the book will be so fully illustrated throughout, right. just like that of Blunder was. Great. Great. Well, I, I would certainly hope to see uh, in Her Majesty's Name, second edition uh, in the U.S. through Brigade Games, I would think. Uh, Lon and Nick have a very strong relationship, so I will I will imagine that that will be finding its way to Pleasant Hill via Lon at some point. So, so all right. Well, I, I am definitely very... Uh, very optimistic for next year. Then if, if that's going to be coming out, I'm certainly going to be looking forward to that. Um, and, uh, I appreciate taking your time and I appreciate your patience and dealing with me because we had a couple of fits and starts on, I won't go into the full details on the show, but we, we did have some fits and starts. They're all on my end. Craig was very polite and punctual and I dropped the ball on multiple, <laughs> multiple occasions. Well, I do work for the ministry. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm I'm glad we I'm glad I got my my shit together and we were able to <laughs> finally have this chat and um, just been an absolute delight. Um, why don't we take a look at maybe having you back on once it once uh, second edition is about to hit and we'll delve into it in the, into detail. How's that sound? I'd love to. Yes. Yeah, so we'll look forward to that in sometime in the spring then. Okay, yeah. maybe I'll get Charles to come on as well. We hey, yeah, absolutely. We can, if you can we, handle two streams at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I just upgraded my Zencaster back to back to the premium level so I can have multiple guests on. That won't be a problem. So He's now going to listen to this and he'll be cursing me because he hates to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, we need you on the air. There you go. Just so they know it isn't an idiot running this company. <laughs> Craig, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show. I really had a blast talking with you, and I'm looking forward to everything coming out in the future. And Okay. Um, folks, as always, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran War Gamer is copyright J. Arnold 2021. Music is Atlantica by Studio 35. Courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.